people. Always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi. And it's Leslie. <laughs> Guest host, Mad Blender. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Yeah, super excited to have Leslie from Mad Blender on the show today. Um, she is an awesome anti-capitalist vegan YouTuber who's made some really kick-ass videos. We've done a bunch of collabs. So we did a collab about the World Bank and the IMF. Um, we also did one about equality of opportunity. Did we do another one recently? Yeah, I think we did... You did one like about the First Nations in Canada, and I did right one about, uh, like racial discrimination in the U- in the United States. Right, yeah. So it was institutional racism. Yes, I believe. Yes, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, she has some great videos, so go check her out at Mad Blender. I'll put her link below. Yes. Um, but today we're gonna talk about. Well, we're drawing from capitalist realism, but we're going to be talking about mental health issues and addiction, something that we've both dealt with in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And Leslie's been really open about that. You've made a video about that on your channel, right? So Yeah. yeah, we've both been pretty open about this. And uh, we both read capitalist realism and just felt like, God, this would be such a good topic to talk about. Absolutely. Yeah, we have so much to say. So I guess first, let's just, I don't know, give a little bit of a a review about capitalist realism. Like, what did you like about it? What did you not like about it? Yeah, there was so much good stuff. Um, I liked how we talked talked about so capitalist realism, I think is he sort of describes it as this sort of like, ambient, all pervasive atmosphere where it's just sort of implied that capitalism is all that there is um, and Mm -hmm. really conditions how we see the world, how we work, like our social relations, and even like our thoughts and behaviors. It actually kind of reminded me, I did a video on cultural uh, hegemony and a lot of his work reminds me kind of a lot of Gramsci's work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's just this ideology that has essentially become like naturalized so it's not even questioned anymore like uh thatcher's like there is no alternative Mm -hmm. um and basically what the whole book is like kind of premised on is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism Mm -hmm. i liked how we talked about um how capitalist realism is like has really engineered like a business ontology meaning that everything should be run as a business, like including mm-hmm. education and healthcare, and, um, and of course mental healthcare, and yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, and that like even our personal lives should be run as businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just I found it all really really useful in kind of conceptualizing capital and um, thinking about being creative with our alternatives. Yeah. Like Maureen and I were talking a bit. I'm not sure we talked about this. On, on air, but we, we've been reading um, Emergent Strategy, and she's been recommending that to people. And it's kind of similar, well, not similar at all, but it's, it's in the same vein of thinking about like all these different emergent possibilities for life post-capitalism or for alternative ways of being and how we really need to be creative with that. And yeah, I just kind of felt like Mark Fisher's capitalist realism was kind of a good 
I don't know, it accompanied that kind of spirit really well because it really broke down like where we are now. But then the end really challenged us to like, we have to go beyond this. Like we can't just go back to whatever the new deal. We we can't just be (laughs) fighting for old forms of oppression. We need to really like be creative and and look at this and look at, at a way out. So really liked that. I was telling Leslie before that I didn't quite like the way that he talked about postmodernism. <laughs> because like, it's, it's just meaningless. Like I really, I have such a problem when, when leftists talk about postmodernism as if it is one singular thing that we can talk about. I mean, I think in this book, he was equating, not equating, but he was like suggesting that postmodernism was capitalist or like, yeah, like I got that impression that I'm like, it's just so funny how like, okay, so he's saying that. And then you have Jordan Peterson saying the exact opposite that (laughs) postmodernism is actually like this neo-Marxist conspiracy. Yes. So anyway, I, yeah, I just don't like when people throw out the term postmodern and they really reduce it to just this idea that meta narratives are bad. Yes. You know, like, and it's just like, that's not what postmodernism is, right? Like, that's like a very small sliver of what some branches of postmodernism believe or like use as a tool to deconstruct the world kind of thing. But I'm just like, you can't just reduce it to that. And then when you do, of course, you can you can say it's in service of capital. You can say it's not in service of capital. Like you can say anything because you've like really taken it out of context and reduced it to this thing that doesn't have a meaning. <laughs> like, yes. It doesn't have a meaning. Yes. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think on uh, Rev Left Radio recently they had someone talking about Foucault and you know what Foucault can do for Marx and for the left and stuff. And so I'm, I'm like, yeah. And also like, there's you know post-humanism is part of post-modernism and that's stuff where people are just analyzing how animals and non-human life also have agency and things like that like it has nothing to do with (laughs) with the way that people talk about it so that's just my only nitpick i don't like how he threw out the word postmodern, but overall i would definitely recommend the book yes no and i agree with that too there's so many different thinkers in the postmodern, I don't know, genre, I guess you would say. And they yeah. all have, there is no one, you know, definition of postmodernism. It's very, like you said, it's very mm-hmm. broad. And there are parts of it that we can critique. There are parts of it that we can build upon. Like there's yes. always something good and something bad from any tradition. But just to say, like, oh, postmodernism is X and it is bad. It's like, yes. what the fuck is this discourse? Anyway. <laughs> I totally agree. Yes, yes. (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, we both really liked the book and we really liked its treatment of, well, it's like its call to politicize mental illness and addiction and put that into social and political context and not simply treat it as a natural, naturally occurring thing that we just have to treat with, um, you know, paying for drugs or therapists or whatever. Not that we shouldn't pay for drugs or therapists, but that like we need to look at the bigger picture. Absolutely. Yeah. He talks about and he pulled from Lacanian psychoanalysis in it and from Zizek, who like I think really um, made that popular. And he talks about Mm -hmm. the real versus reality. And he describes the real being like that which is and reality being that 
which like presents itself as what is, um, but in fact mm-hmm. is really just suppressing what is real. Um, and right now we live in this reality, which is like very ideologically mediated, but presents itself as like natural. And mm-hmm. Fisher says that one way we could really fight back against capitalist realism would be to like uncover the real being masked by the reality. And he uses mental health as an example, which I really liked. Um, and just talks about how mental illness is made to seem as if it's like this natural thing that's just like supposed to happen and that it's like purely chemical and biological and which of course there's that component but like you said we really need to be asking like why so many people are suffering and take Mm -hmm. a more like societal approach and like look at the the systemic causes you know Mm -hmm. yeah i think that's like a really good I guess, lens to look at it through, like the real versus reality, like, like the way things really are and the way that everyone talks about it, you know? And I feel like, yeah, the way that everyone talks about it is in this really individualized way and like, oh no, we have to end the stigma as if the stigma is like, obviously the stigma is bad, but as if the stigma is like the reason that mental health issues are are just exploding today, you know, like nobody's really getting at like, well, why is there such an explosion? You know? Exactly. Yeah. Such a good point. So I just wanted to read like a few passages here from the book where he kind of talks about treating mental health as more than just a natural fact. So he says, quote, capitalist realism insists on treating mental health as if it were a natural fact like weather. But then again, weather is no longer a natural fact so much as a political economic effect. True. In the 1960s and 70s, radical theory and politics coalesced around extreme mental conditions such as schizophrenia, arguing for instance that madness was not a natural but a political category. What is needed now is a politicization of much more common disorders. Indeed, it is their very commonness which is the issue. In Britain, depression is now the condition that is most treated by the NHS. In his book, The Selfish Capitalist, Oliver James has convincingly posited a correlation between rising rates of mental distress and the neoliberal mode of capitalism practiced in countries like Britain, the USA, and Australia. In line with James's claims, I want to argue that it is necessary to re- frame the growing problem of stress and distress in capitalist societies. Instead of treating it as incumbent on individuals to resolve their own psychological distress, instead, that is, of accepting the vast privatization of stress that has taken place over the last 30 years, we need to ask, how has it become acceptable that so many people, and especially so many young people, are ill? The mental health plague in capitalist societies would suggest that instead of being the only social system that works, capitalism is inherently dysfunctional and the cost of it appearing to work is very high. Um, And then on page 21, he talks about how, because he works with teenagers and he said that there's just been a real increase in mental health problems or learning disabilities and that, uh, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say that being a teenager in late capitalist Britain is now close to being reclassified as a sickness. And he says, by privatizing these problems, treating them as if they were caused only by chemical imbalances in the individual's neurology and or by their family background, any question of social systemic causation is ruled out. So yeah, I felt like that was 100% apt. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, even just anecdotally, like, I mean, we're going to get into some stats about the increase in mental health issues shortly. But even just anecdotally, I mean, I remember when I was younger, you know, I was in the generation 
like I was born in the 80s. What? (laughs) (laughs) Ditto. (laughs) Yeah. In the late 80s, you know. Um, so, I, I don't, yeah, at that time, I remember when I was going to school, like in the 90s, it was kind of just coming out then that there was this rise in kids having ADHD and stuff like that. And they were blaming it on all these really sugary cereals that everybody was eating. Because I remember when I was a kid, we just, we kind of just bought like McDonald's or Pizza Hut or like I would just eat Lunchables at lunch and Coke and, Dunkaroos and breakfast Dunkaroos, was like yes, yes. <laughs> or gushers or whatever yes. right <laughs> um and breakfast was like what cinnamon toast crunch like so kids are just literally sitting down and eating these bowls of sugar and milk which is a whole other thing um <laughs> but yeah and so it was just kind of coming out that yeah this way that we're living with no time and basically just like entrusting everything to these corporations to give us these really fast packaged things that we could just quickly take on the go, that that was causing all these learning difficulties in kids and they were crashing at school, they were getting ADHD and all this stuff. And yeah, I just really remember just a steady increase in things like that coming out. I don't know if you had the kind of the same experience, but- Yeah. Definitely. Um, and it's so funny, like, not, it's actually not funny at all, but like, <laughs> yeah. nobody put two and two together that like, they did, like you said, that sugary substances are fueling this ADHD. But instead of dealing with the, the, the root causes of these issues, like, uh, like sugary cereals, and then even further to the root of that, but we put them on ADH meds at seven, mm-hmm. eight, nine years old or whatever. And it's yeah. like, so we have all these kids pumped full of Ritalin, which Ritalin and um, Adderall are essentially amphetamines. Like we're giving <laughs> our freaking kids amphetamines and then mm-hmm. wondering why they're messed up later on. Like yeah. it, it just drives me crazy. And the mental health field in general just wants to like dope you up on Mm-hmm. all different kinds of medication instead of like <laughs> dealing yeah. with you know other the other factors yeah like the broader system you're right so it's like yeah okay all this sugar is causing problems but nobody's looking at like well why are these companies allowed to feed us like why are there no regulations around these companies just feeding us right you know chemicals and sugar um why are people so pressed for time that like they don't have the option or the luxury of doing like slow cooking or the slow food movement they're just grabbing these things off the shelf quickly to feed to their kids but anyway so looking at the increase in mental health issues um this is from psychology today they say that mental the increase in mental health issues is most consistent between the 1930s and the early 1990s anxiety and depression increased between these decades very much so and then after that the trend shows kind of an inconsistent pattern some measures level off at historically high levels some continue to increase and others decline so for example um the youth suicide rate declined after the early 1990s however this was because 
at that time, that's when modern antidepressants were introduced, um, like right in the early 1990s. So then that's that made the suicide rate start to decline because it was kind of it was taking the edge off for kids. So that measure slightly started to go down. However, most other men- measures of mental health have not improved in the last 20 years. Um, for example, a nationally representative sample of high school seniors showed that More students in the 2010s reported psychosomatic symptoms of depression, such as having trouble sleeping and concentrating. And like in terms of antidepressant use, um, Americans who say they've taken an antidepressant over the past month rose by 65% between 1999 and 2014, with one in eight Americans over the age of 12 admitting to recent antidepressant use. So the decline in suicide rate is not a very good gauge of the overall state of young people's mental health. So, I mean, yeah, I can <laughs> attest to that. When I was in when I was in high school, yeah, I actually knew a few friends who were on antidepressants at that time. I didn't start until much later, but <laughs> like if if I'm thinking about like myself and my closest friends or even just, you know, a lot of people that I know, I would definitely say that I mean, one in eight would would be Um, I would say like, you know, one in three have gone through some kind of mental illness, some kind of eating disorder, have been on antidepressants, have had something worse happen. You know, I I feel like it's very pervasive. Yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree. I remember um, being in high school and I remember at 10, nine, 10 years old, um, my best friend who lived next door, her and I were worried about counting calories and exercising like pervasively, like extensively for hours at a time because, and mm-hmm. this is nine, 10 years old because, you know, we had such poor body image. And then once I got into high school, um, that like increased substantially and all of the friends I was hanging out with were depressed. I had friends that were cutting themselves. I had friends. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, um, put on antidepressants at 14, um, mm. So, and so were a lot of my friends. So I, it's, yeah, it's it's just crazy. Yeah. No, same. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't put on antidepressants that young, but I mean, I probably could, I could have benefited from them, Yeah, but yeah, definitely. And, um, these stats are from Cam H here. So they say that young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and or substance abuse disorder than any other age group. And like, hell yeah, I believe that. I think, uh, I don't know where I read this stat. I didn't write it down here, but it was that, you know, most kind of mental health issues are formed in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so I'm from Canada. So in any given year, one in five Canadians experience a mental health or addiction problem. And by the time Canadians reach 40, one in two have or have had a mental illness. 34% of Ontario high school students indicate a moderate to serious level of psychological distress, um, symptoms of anxiety and depression, and 14% indicate a serious level of psychological distress. And then like the link with substance abuse, people with mental illness are twice as likely to have a substance abuse problem compared to the general population. And similarly, people with substance use problems are up to three times more likely to have a mental illness. The most important stat, I believe, is that Canadians in the lowest income group are three to four times more likely than those in the highest income group to report poor to fair mental health. 
And studies in various Canadian cities indicate that between 23% and 67% of homeless people report having a mental illness. And yeah, I mean, I just think that's obviously so telling. And also there's a ton of really depressing stats about Indigenous communities in Canada and their suicide rates and their rates of depression, etc., um, I'll read off some of those actually because they're kind of staggering. I'll put these all in the in the timeline in the show notes um, so that people can check them out. But Indigenous people in Canada have some of the highest suicide rates in the world. It's really an epidemic, um, and obviously this was very rare among First Nations historically. But it was only after European contact and colonialism that this became really pre- prevalent. So I mean, duh. Um, But suicide and self-inflicted injuries are the leading causes of death for First Nations youth and adults up to 44 years of age. Approximately 55% of all Indigenous people are under 25 years of age, which is, yeah. Um, It's also really damaging culturally because, uh, like, elders are the knowledge keepers and they're the ones that are looked up to to you know, facilitate intergenerational transfer of knowledge and, you know, continue the cultural tradition, everything. So if you don't have any elders, it's also really just damaging for the culture at large. So anyway, the suicide rate for First Nations male youth is 126 per 100,000 compared to 24 for per 100,000 for non-Indigenous male youth. Wow. So one, 126 to f- 24, um, and then for First Nations females, it's 35 to 5, which Crazy. is, oh. yeah, yeah. Wow. And suicide rates for Inuit youth are among the highest in the world at 11 times the national average. So, I mean, I feel like people people can hear stats like that and, like, we know that there's problems, but then it's just so much easier to kind of deflect and say, like, oh, well – which came first, the mental illness or homelessness? Like homeless people are have mental illness, or sorry, homeless people are homeless because uh, they have mental illness, uh, right? Yeah. Or you know, indigenous people like they don't have any money and like they, you know, it's because they're lazy and uh, depressed. Yeah. I mean, even on this, so I got these indigenous um, suicide stats from the Centers for Suicide Prevention. And at the bottom, it's like, what can you do? And I mean, they rightfully point out that, you know, colonialism and extreme marginalization, etc. And the continued like stealing of indigenous resources and everything, they rightfully point out that these are things that obviously contribute to poor mental health. But then at the end, it's like, well, okay, what can you do? And it's like, donate to the these foundations like the native alcohol and drug abuse program and blah 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 and you know i'm not saying that these program like yes we need to beef up these programs and have them available available for people but like what about getting at the actual like you've you've laid out what the root causes are and yet the solution is like just donate some money to this program that's going to help like coach them through their shitty life <laughs> not like okay guys Ugh. we need to de- we need to decolonize we need to you know recognize indigenous sovereignty and laws or we need like serious redistribution of wealth now so that people in the lowest income bracket aren't suffering with so much more mental illness and stress and anxiety but no <laughs> i was yeah <laughs> no no that's such a good point i was actually um i was reading <laughs> 
I think it was in 2016, there was a suicide pact. There was like a bunch of kids that made a suicide pact. It was like 13, I think, indigenous youth from um, one of the First Nations in Canada, Canada. Um, Adawapiskat. I don't know if yeah, you know how to yeah. pronounce that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I guess they were saying that um, someone overheard the, overheard these kids talking. And so they sent them to the, the hospital for treatment. But the hospital was already so overburdened with people that had come in trying to s- s- commit suicide that they sent half of the kids to jail. <laughs> like, I was like, are you kidding me? And mm-hmm. and it talked talked about the article talked about how this was just honestly the like the the suicide the depression is just the inevitable results of like generations of fraught relations between first nations communities and like the federal government and mm-hmm. like the indian act of in the late 1800s which basically like transferred all decision making capabilities from the indigenous people themselves to like officials in ottawa and now like there's no resources no money going to these first nations like Mm -hmm. residential schools were like found to be abusing aboriginal children and then you know we wonder why they have problems with like addiction and poverty and i don't know yeah just (laughs) so ridiculous ridiculous. totally yeah i mean i could definitely do a whole podcast on like residential schools alone and how terrible that was i mean um indigenous children were snatched away from their families and they were forced to it was like they had to take lessons in you know english and christianity and it was basically they they were the whole point of them was to like beat the indian out of the child or whatever and it's so gross it's so gross i just think that's the problem too it's like differences among cultures too like even with um like traditional mental health models like they don't take cultural factors into account so like you know indigenous people a lot of indigenous people like um you know believe in spirits and you know talking to mother earth and their ancestors and stuff and like some uh mainstream mental health assessments like if you're talking to spirits that's seen as like a delusion or psychosis or something you know what i mean like we really need to like educate i don't know mainstream uh clinical workers on these like uh cultural differences like Mm -hmm. so that they can better you know help these people and and like you said, plus just the sovereignty of like them being able to mm-hmm. do what they want, <laughs> right? And like like live according to their own traditional law and constitution right. and everything, which they should be able to do because it should be a nation to nation relationship. But yes, anyway, so yeah, I mean, I guess the whole point here is that there are obviously chemical imbalances that lead to you know mental health issues, um, but. I think the question that Mark Fisher brings up and that, you know, we're bringing up today is, you know, what causes these imbalances to happen? Like, and this, this has a lot to do with in geography, we talk about the social determinants of health so that health is never just this reductionist, like medical issue. There's always something that there's always a story to it. Like there's always a history of like what happened to you. Uh, uh, all along the way to lead to this general state of health. And I mean, I've talked about my illness before my chronic illness, my adrenal fatigue, which stemmed from years of me having an eating disorder. And I mean, I can link all of this to kind of like a capitalist patriarchy as well, which I, I might do a bit more later. But the point is that there's this entire story that was shaped by broader social and political and economic factors that led me into this state of hormonal imbalance. And then, yeah, I mean, very deep depression, right? So 
I mean, I guess I was depressed even when I was younger too, but I'm just saying, you know, like there's always a story to, to how things happen. It's, it, there's always social determinants of health. So we want to look more closely at that so that we're not just trying to like put band-aid solutions on the problem and never really get to the core of why this is happening and never really help people get out of it, you know? Exactly. The role that a chemical imbalance and, you know, chemical factors and biological factors play in in mental illness, especially, you know, when we're talking about things like uh, depression. Uh, so there's something called the Hamilton scale, which measures depression on a scale of one to 51 with one being like ridiculously ecstatic to 51 being acutely suicidal. So, and to give you an idea of what, you know, movement on the scale looks like, if you improve, if you improve your sleep patterns, uh, you'd move up six points. And if your sleep patterns mm -hmm. get worse, you'd move the opposite six points. And so um, when you look at the effects of antidepressants on the scale, you on average, people that start taking antidepressants uh, move an average of 1.8 points on the scale. Now, mm -hmm. obviously, that's an average. Some people move higher and some for some people it's lower, but that's the average. And so the point being that antidepressants can be incredibly useful, uh, especially like if you're acutely suicidal, they absolutely help to, to take the edge off. And, uh, but it's not this miracle cure that people make it out to be. Um, mm -hmm. And I just think, especially after like the diagnostic and statistical manual came out uh, in America and we really started pushing this idea of mental illness, especially depression, being just a chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this was largely, you know, in the interests of capital, the interests of pharmaceutical companies. Because uh, mm -hmm. if you think about it, the pharmaceutical companies, even the government would not be served by admitting to this relationship between structural and environmental problems and the psychological distress that follows like that wouldn't serve yeah. them. And even if you look at the type of studies that are backed by big pharma, for example, like they're interested in the genetic and the biological components of mental illness, because of course, yeah. these are the areas where they can make the most money selling lots of drugs and um, mm -hmm. ad admitting that there may be like other social environmental causes would just not be, you know, good. Mm -hmm. And I think psychiatry in general just really tries uh to medicalize normal human emotions, e even emotions and uh, emotions that arise as a result of like losing your job or losing mm -hmm. your baby or something. And, um, and I just wonder sometimes, like, is it really ethical that, as I said before, that we're drugging kids that can't sit still in class or like labeling uh, someone with bipolar disorder and prescribing them an antipsychotic 48 hours after they enter detox for drug abuse. That's what happened to me. That's why I'm saying that. Like, I just said. <laughs> I'm like, that's a very specific example. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we're diagnosing and over-diagnosing these problems because it's just more profitable, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Than changing society. <laughs> so No, totally. And I mean, I, I can totally relate to the sleep thing because, yeah, I, like in the throes of my eating disorder, I mean, people can go listen to the Body Image podcast if they want to hear like the full story about this. But I had messed up my cortisol levels, my stress levels. I had taxed my adrenals so badly that I had developed insomnia. So I had insomnia for about like four years. And I mean, I had already had like, you know, been on and off, had dealt with depression for most of my life. But 
Oh my God. The years when I had insomnia were the worst, like the worst, like every day was just like, you know, that feeling when you're just on the verge of tears at any moment, it was just like, I would just break down over like nothing. Luckily I worked from home so I could just like sit there bawling. (laughs) But I mean, yeah, like sleep is so important for like balancing your hormones, et cetera. And that has such a, a big effect on your mood and everything. So I can, I can understand why like fi- fixing your sleep patterns would move you six points on that scale. And when I started taking antidepressants, I, yeah, I felt it was really mild. I was kind of scared at first because when I was in high school and my friends were taking them, um, some of them reported that like they didn't feel like themselves. Like they felt like they were just really numbed out and whatever. And so I had this fear that I was going to just turn into this different person and that I was just not going to be able to feel any emotion at all. And I was really surprised that it was like very, very mild. I mean, like I did find them very, very helpful because they did take that edge off. So I wasn't like crying every day (laughs) and it like helped me with my sleep. So I think it's true that they are they are helpful. But at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I still struggle with stuff. I'm still on them. I still struggle with stuff. Like it's, it takes the edge off, but you still have to like do the work. Like I still have to like go to therapy, like do the mental work that you need to do every day to still like get by. It's not like, oh, I'm imbalanced. Oh, here's this pill. I'm cured. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, And for anyone thinks that the guy on antidepressants do, I think they're, you know, a good idea. They, they do help people, but but like we're saying, it's just like not a a miracle cure. Yeah. Anyway, that's just really interesting to know that there are a lot of things that can slide you up and down on that scale that don't necessarily have to do with um, drugs or like trying to trying to fix that imbalance. Although, and I, and I also think that sleep is something that we can relate to this like late capitalist society. I know so many, especially young people today, who have really messed up sleep patterns. And I think a lot of that does have to do with depression. Like people just like stay up all night, like playing games or like being on Twitter or like whatever, you know, (laughs) or they have, yeah, or they have like just way too much, like way too much work to do. Like they're working and also going to university, et cetera. So their sleep just gets, becomes really hectic and frantic. And I feel like that's, yeah, that's not serving anybody. And that also relates to the, the society that we're in, you know? Exactly. I actually, I was, I was listening to, um, I can't remember if it was a podcast or just like a talk. And he was just talking about like how we really do need to pay more attention to like these society, pretty much what we've been saying, but these society factors. And he brought up, or basically like, uh, lifestyle, the way we live, the way, um, our, you know, uh, social relations are shaped. And he talked about the Kaluli people, which Mm -hmm. is like a clan living in, the rainforest in uh, Papua New Guinea, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And there was this anthropologist, uh, I think his name, Edward Schieferlin? Schieferlin? Anyways, he spent over a decade living with um, this Kaluli clan. And uh, he did really extensive interviews um, with 2,000 of its members. And he found among all those 2,000 people, he found only one mild case of clinical depression. And so I just thought that was really um, amazing considering these tribes like live in really rough conditions. They have a high rates of infant mortality, high rates of parasitic infection. Um, but they, but he studied them and found that their lifestyle, like they, they live much like our ancestors did in the Pleistocene area 
era as like hunter gatherers and he found that they live a lot more cooperatively and mm-hmm. um, just the importance to, I just wanted to bring up the importance of having uh, people you can talk like connections with people and like, mm-hmm. pe- and like, uh, I just think that's so important. Like, I think it's in America. Uh, they did a study when they first started doing the study, they asked people how many close friends they could go to in the case of like an emergency. And at the beginning of the, when they first started doing like years and years ago, it was five people. And now the most common answer is zero people. Like Ugh. we're so like alienated and disconnected and isolated. I know uh-huh. that kind of like got into a different, t- different topic, but that just got me thinking of no, just yeah. like, you know, ugh, we're just. No, that's so true and so important. And I feel like, yeah, people have a lot of connections now via social media, but like not really in real life. And yeah. you, do, you don't really know if you can trust somebody on social media kind of thing. I have oh. a lot, like a lot of young men who have like reached out to me. I guess they feel like I'm a safe person and I am, you know, Yeah, <laughs> but, <course>. but it's <laughs> also like, I, like, I, I feel like that's also like symptomatic of the fact that like people, people don't have a lot of people to reach out to, you know? And also I'm like, you know, I do to an extent, but uh, like a lot of my in real life friends, it's like I can talk to them about what I'm going through personally, if it has to do with like my relationships or my family or things like that. But I don't have that many people that I can have like really in-depth conversations like this about like systemic issues. I really don't have that. So I understand. And like, you know, I'm, I'm grateful when people reach out and like are really open and, and want to talk like that. Um, but I think that it's part of it is just like people are just kind of like starving for that. And they're just like, okay, you seem safe. Like, I'll just tell you it, you know? Exactly. Um, I was just watching, actually, I'm so happy that this series exists and I will link it in the timeline. It's called Man Enough. Have you seen this on no, YouTube? No, I've heard about it. I need to watch it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I just watched the first two episodes and I love it so much. <laughs> is that I, the thing the vor- vegan uh, warrior warrior princesses were promoting on their page yeah see it on their page was that the thing yeah, yeah, yeah. okay yeah watch it. <laughs> oh my god everyone watch it i'll put it in the timeline it's it's basically it's a bunch of like cis men talking openly about their emotions and about like the first episode is called why men don't talk and then the second episode is about vulnerability and i just think having had like just like interactions with you know, young men at like meetups I would have or whatever. And just like hearing all of their similar issues of like really wanting to be able to talk and be vulnerable and like unload a lot of what they're thinking and feeling, but they have no outlet and they have no one to say it to. And I just feel like that is so suffocating. Like that is just so smothering. And I guess like I have been, you know, lucky being socialized as a woman in that like I was never told like don't cry or like don't tell your friends your personal problems or like don't you know what I mean um so hearing like people say that like they have a hard time being they have a hard time crying I'm like how do you let anything out then I mean like of course everything is just gonna feel like it's weighing down on your shoulders and anyway I just think the series does a really good job at like breaking down masculinity and this idea of like having a network and of just being a human. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I definitely need to watch that. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It is so good. I can totally relate to, um, like I spent so many years like bottling up my emotions and not crying and not talking to people and just sort of like, it's amazing what kind of like resentment that builds inside. And, Mm -hmm. and so like you can kind of see like especially in men how because they're 
you know, brought up to be that way, how maybe that's why sometimes they can be more aggressive or whatever, because they're not able to, Mm -hmm. you know, let out those feelings in their personal relationship. So it, it, comes out in other ways and i guess mm-hmm. that's the idea of toxic masculinity you know too um, yeah yeah and so. like the the fact that um like the male suicide rate is so much higher because yeah. yeah i mean like when i was feeling suicidal in my life that was a point where yeah a lot of my friends had moved away i didn't really feel like i had anyone to tell anything to i think i told it to like one person but otherwise i just felt like it's just it's a scary feeling it is very scary and smothering and you kind of feel like that's when you have no way out because you have no one to go to so yeah the importance of a network is super important because i was i was lucky enough that i had um benefits so i i decided that i would go to see a therapist but therapy is fucking expensive and if you don't have insurance if you don't have benefits then you don't get any so which is another another part of capitalist realism today and sometimes that's the only uh person someone has to talk to would be like their therapist because they really don't have those support networks so it's like so vital for them to be able and it's the people that can afford it the least that need to help the most yes so exactly exactly sucky i know fucking capitalism (laughs) fuck capitalism (laughs) god damn it (laughs) yeah uh i started reading mark fisher actually uh talks about oliver james and he's the author of the selfish capitalist in uh his book and so i ordered it and i've been reading it and it's amazing now just to say i'm not actually i haven't finished the book and i'm not actually sure if he's purely anti-capitalist but he does spend a significant amount of time uh, pretty much the whole book talking about the effects of neoliberalism he calls it selfish capitalism which is essentially neoliberalism and the effects that has had on mental illness and so uh one thing he brings up he talks about um a study done by the world health organization a really extensive study 25 countries using the same methods everywhere they made sure to use representative samples culturally neutral language and everything and it basically showed the global distribution of emotional distress and what they found is that uh, twice as many people suffer from emotional distress in english speaking countries so america uh, britain australia canada you know uh, new zealand and that in western european ones like germany france belgium those kind of countries um so yeah so there was uh, twice as much distress in those countries than the Western European countries. Um, and the USA uh, had the largest prevalence. That's no surprise there, I don't think, uh, with, those, <laughs> with, with over a quarter of Americans having been distressed in the past month. Um, huh. And he talked about how there's considerable evidence to suggest that genes are not the cause. Like He shows that Italian-Americans, for example, for example, have prevalences three times higher than the descendants of Italians that stayed in Europe. Hmm. Um, and the same with African-Americans with origins in Nigeria. They, they have rates six times higher than the Nigerians who were not forced into slavery and to stay in Africa. Um, surprise, and, surprise. Uh, right, exactly. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and so it seems that what the studies are showing is that as populations immigrate, they start to develop the distress rates of their adoptive country within a few generations. And uh, James actually, he uh, provides really convincing evidence that these different distress rates among nations is largely due to like these English speaking countries um, implementing selfish capitalism or neoliberalism while the Mm -hmm. countries in like mainland Western Europe 
they implemented neoliberalism, but not to the same extent these other countries did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it showed where in every country where neoliberal policies were implemented, like the most, uh, you know, real wages stagnated or decreased, working conditions became shit, unions lost power and were broken up, inequality rose, like, mm-hmm. and materialistic values came front and center. And he spends a lot of time also discussing the effects of materialism and consumerism mm-hmm. and how that affects our self worth, the way we see and interact with the world. You know, he talks about this idea of like, you know, how it, essentially, uh, meritocracy is bullshit, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we believe it so very, especially um, in America. You know, we believe in the American dream. We believe that if you only work hard enough and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can make it. And this is really destructive because uh, <laughs> the way our society is structured makes it literally impossible for it to everyone to succeed. So, you know, mm-hmm. if someone just says you need to work harder, or smarter, or whatever, you know, they're full of shit because, I mean, the capitalist system literally depends on like millions of people not being able to make it so Mm -hmm. you know yeah and it's terrifying (laughs) it's really really terrifying i mean yeah growing up as a millennial today um i mean we talked about this in our from over substance podcast that so many people buy into it and kind of end up defending the system because we're basically taught that our self-worth is around what you do. You know what I mean? Mm, it's like, yes. if you're at a bar, like, oh, what do you do? That's like the first question. You know what I mean? And Ugh. it's just like, that is supposed to tell you everything about a person. And so people end up striving for these ridiculous things like, oh, vice president of marketing of like some total <laughs> bullshit ass you know, company that's doing shit work, but it doesn't matter because I'm the vice president and that's a great job. And like, and so, yeah, you're just taught to define yourself by what you do in a environment where there are less, like fewer and fewer stable positions, more shitty contract ass piece of crap work. And neoliberalism also rolls back any protections that you might have so it's like you're just out there on your own and that's terrifying because it's like if i do not make it i die like i am on the street and no one's going to like everyone will just blame me for being there and nobody will want to help you know and then people will just say like right and then if i develop some kind of mental illness or like abuse you know substance abuse just to fucking deal with my goddamn existence people are gonna be like oh well if you just cleaned yourself up a bit you might be able to like you'd get a job you know what i mean and it's just like oh fucking hell yeah can i just say nothing pisses me off more than the way we treat (laughs) addicts and uh alcoholics in these societies like the solution pretty much now is like uh incarcerate them or Mm -hmm. like we have this war on drugs to illegalize every single drug and like uh, arrest people when they have like a dime bag of pot on them or whatever Mm -hmm. it's just like the way we treat and just like the stigma attached and uh we'll get into it i'm you know uh recovering addict drug addict and alcoholic so yeah, it, well, why that you hits share, home, like, yeah. Sh- if you feel comfortable sharing your experience. Sure. Uh, yeah. So um, basically, I like I was talking about before, and uh, I've worked with a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics over the years, uh, whether it be you know voluntarily or you know in drug and alcohol facility I interned at, and what I hear time and time again, and what I, I felt uh, my whole life was this like 
sense of purposelessness. Like what, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what am I doing here? Like what is going on? Everything feels superficial. Nothing feels real. Mm-hmm. And to deal with that and to deal with my depression, uh, my anxiety, my very distorted body image, I, uh, started drinking at 14. I turned into a hardcore alcoholic by the time I was uh, 17 or 18, entered my first rehab when I was 19. And then, you know, that progressed into heroin addiction. Um, basically, what I found is I, that was my coping strategy, you know, for the longest mm-hmm. time, because I had used drugs and alcohol for so long, I thought that my problem was the drugs and the alcohol. <laughs> but I'll never mm-hmm. forget, when I finally got sober, and I stopped using, I found that I was when I finally took those substances out of my body, I found that I was felt crazier than ever before. I was more mm-hmm. suicidal than ever before. And it, I found that I didn't have those uh, coping mechanisms anymore. So I was left with just me and mm-hmm. all my thoughts of self-hatred and, uh, you know, worthlessness. And mm-hmm. uh, so really finding new ways to cope was really hard. Um, mm-hmm. And so you know, I spent a large part of my life in and out of rehabs, um, jail, uh, just, you know, and suffering from, I guess, self, you know, self-medicating, I guess, because Mm -hmm. um, I had all these um, feelings of depression and anxiety and then uh, trying to hold it in in this society, you know, trying to hold a job or trying to get help or uh, Mm -hmm. really, (laughs) uh, I think I got fired from every job I had during that period and like no one mm-hmm. really wanted to help. They just, you know, it's like if you're not producing, you get yeah. you get kicked right out, you know what right. I mean? Like that's yeah. just how we are. And mm-hmm. uh yeah, so um yeah. yeah Definitely. I know I'm so sorry that obviously you went through all of that, but I just I love that you're so open about that like with everyone because I feel like that has such a potential to help people who are feeling similarly because I feel like so many young people have that feeling of like worthlessness and of just like, what the hell am I doing here? And this whole society is superficial. And what is the point of this? And I don't, I don't have the energy. Like that's how I felt when I was younger. Like I didn't um, get into the hard drugs or anything, but I can relate to those feelings anyway, like those underlying feelings of like self-hatred and like body image issues and just like, yeah, like when I was, when I was younger, like part of my depression was just that like, I never, I never ever bought into like this society. Like even when I was a kid, I was just like, I don't like the way that we were doing this. Like, I don't like how we've organized this. I don't want to participate. Like, I don't want to compete. I don't yes. want to like go get a job at an office for no fucking reason. Like just to make money to buy things that I don't need. And you know what I mean? I was just yes. like, I just felt suffocated right from the get go. And then, but yeah, because you're taught that like your self-worth is tied up with what you do. I was just like, okay, so if I don't do this, I will be worthless. And so it's just this really like just nefarious way that we like bring up our children and teach them about their self-worth and about like what they need to do in the society. And yeah, I mean, it does, it it does feel empty. And I think this is one part of the book that he brings up that like people realize that something is missing. Like they feel like the system is empty, but nobody actually really knows what that empty something is. And so they just try to pursue pleasure via like addiction or consumption, like 
yes. Jake's just buying things, but it just always falls flat of getting you anywhere, right? Because it just it's just reproducing all the things that are making you empty in the first place. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we try to fill this void we have with anything. Like that's whether it's mm-hmm. drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or shoplifting or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're just constantly trying to fill this void that cannot be filled with like superficial materialistic things. Mm-hmm. And you know, we just keep trying. And like uh, in my 12 step program, they told me that <laughs> if you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're going to keep getting the same results. And that's what we do. Like, yeah. We keep doing the same thing, thinking something's going to change. Well, it's not. And then also tied up in that, I think, um, with addiction and mental health, well, especially with addiction, is that you should just be able to stop. You should just mm-hmm. be able to do it yourself. And that's that kind of privatization of stress that Mark yeah. Fisher talks about that I love is that we should all be able to just do like deal with this stuff on our own. And that's so lonely mm-hmm. and just, again, makes you feel so empty. And I just, mm-hmm. I hate it so much. And like, what does deal with it even mean in that context? Like just right. accept that it just means like, just accept that this is the way the world is. Yes. And that even though you fundamentally disagree with everything that's going on, you disagree with consumerism you disagree with like this whole production consumption system you disagree with capitalism you disagree with exploitation you don't want to participate in it well deal with it meaning like find a way to accept that and still be happy about it like find a way to just smile about that you know what i mean (laughs) and it's like fuck no, like, <laughs> no, I'm not happy about that. God. Like, no. That's god so damn horrible. it. Oh, God. Yeah. That's horrible. What are we thinking? And then, yeah, and then capitalism is just so good at, like, commodifying that or, like, distractions, right? So it's like, uh, oh, yes. it's okay. Like, just get a bunch of money and then go on a vacation and then you'll be able to, like, just hold it down. You know what I mean? But, like... We can't consume our way out of unhappy. We can't consume our way out of this system. And if the system is what's making us unhappy and making us fearful and everything, like with my chronic illness, I'm actually really fearful now. Like I'm doing a lot of different jobs in order to piece together an income right now. And Mm -hmm. I'm fearful that I'm going to have to end up taking on too much or I'm going to have to like get like a standard like nine to five work in an office job that I'm not physically going to be able to handle but I'm going to have to just like run myself down, keep making myself sick, like affect my hormones, affect my sleep in order to goddamn pay the bills. And it's scary. And you, there's no support. And it's just like, why am I doing this? Like, why do I have to hurt myself just to be a person who deserves to eat food? You know what I mean? Or Ugh. deserves to have shelter and water. Like, that's really fucked. Yeah. And it's like, um, you know, just talking about work in general um i think it was gallup that did uh, a study they conducted a study and found that 13 percent of people feel engaged in their work 63 percent do not feel engaged at all and 24 percent feel actively disengaged so it's like <laughs> this is what we're dealing with here everybody fucking hates their job uh-huh. like it's it's more stress than anything and it's like yeah not to mention just like all of the bullshit jobs like you were saying that don't even like that's <laughs> like like advertising and stuff like uh, mm-hmm. people think that they're doing these great things and really all of, like there's so many jobs that just like 
don't need to be there. If we had no. a different way, a different system wouldn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. And people feel so insecure, like these zero hour contracts, these gigs, that, mm-hmm. uh, these temporary jobs, people aren't guaranteed benefits. Nobody has security anymore. Everybody mm-hmm. feels is afraid, you know, of course, of course, I'm afraid I'm like, yeah, work- I'm working like gig to gig contract to contract. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's scary. Like, talk about an entire society of anxiety. Like, how could right. people not have anxiety in this situation? Especially because, like, you know, the like the housing market is just off, <laughs> off the chain. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no way that I'm going to be able to afford – well, I mean, I like, maybe. But, like, n- probably not going to be able to afford, like, a home in the Toronto area. Um, like just uh, this generation is just not going to be able to live the same kind of life that any of the previous generations did. And we know that. And then we're just like, well, then why are we doing this? Like, why are we killing ourselves for scraps? Meanwhile, like all our jobs are getting replaced by robots or being outsourced. So we're just superfluous. So now we're just, okay, let's like, let's fight for a basic income or something. You know what I mean? And it's just like, what a pointless fucking existence. Like, of course. I, I work with um, a number of like indigenous circle and indigenous experts in Canada and they talk a lot about like the different like the disconnected worldview that is the cause of all of this kind of like you know degradation and stuff and I'm like it really is a disconnected worldview like we we just think of ourselves like if you're in the throes of consumerist society and like hyper capitalist society you're not thinking of yourself as an animal that's part of an ecosystem like right. what like you're not thinking about like your connection with other people like other species the earth like the moon the star you're not thinking about any of that like yes. how many people actually consider themselves in relationship to other things like we've been taught to think of ourselves as islands who are just out here to produce and consume and of course how fucking alienating is that like of course we have no feeling of purpose or any kind of connection because it's like we all know that there's no point to this (laughs) so depressing (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's like hard not to become like nihilistic in this society you know know. uh, and even just going back to before like talking about you know, even the, this like culture of fear that it's like, uh, Mark Fisher talks about it in his book too. Uh, you know, it's fear and cynicism are the affects that predominate in late capitalism. And I mean, if you think about it, like fear is a very, you know, uh, animalistic response, I guess, if you think about like evolutionary speaking, mm-hmm. um, our brains like needed to be able to assess risk quickly in case there's like a bear or something, right? Mm-hmm. And But when you think about it, like the society that we live in today, like we're consumed with fear and fear is not just like a mental thing. Like it, it creeps in, it floods the body. It, our Mm -hmm. brains release chemicals when that happens. Our blood pressure goes up. Our heart rate goes up. Like blood rushes to the, to the muscles. Like, and again, that's good if you're living in like the wild, but (laughs) it's not good in the society today. And uh, no wonder. And that kind of, fear also breeds depression and mm-hmm. you know and um and i think uh i was listening to a talk and he was talking about fear and how the, so the risks we face today are not as imminent they're not like the way that they 
like we don't need to be af- afraid of um, things in the wild anymore the way we did and and um the risks we face today are not as imminent you know they require like more nuanced rational decision making skills uh, for example like you know assessing the threat of climate change or whatever um mm-hmm. and he was just saying that now we as human beings always always overestimate risk and once uh, you know, we've determined something to be a threat, no matter like how unjustified that threat is, it takes us over, it, like crowds out other emotions. And um, when we're living in the kind of world that we're living in today, where the news is like constantly broadcasting about school shootings and terrorism and drug, drug epidemics and mm-hmm. uh, Twitter and Facebook are essentially, you know, like cesspools, cesspools of fear, um, <laughs> our private accounts are being hacked and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're like this co- culture bombarded with fear. And when we're consuming, you know, when we're constantly consuming this crap, our brains, like before, release those chemicals. And... So we're constantly feeling like we're living under constant threat. And he was talking about how this like partly explains why someone like Trump resonates with people. You know, he's very Mm -hmm. good at tapping into people's fear. He tells us our jobs are being stolen. Like um, our homes aren't safe anymore because, you know, terrorism or Muslims or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then he provides a very simple solution, like build a wall, ban (laughs) Muslims from entering the country or, you know, give teacher guns and, you know, school shootings will stop. And, you know, it's ludicrous, Mm -hmm. but, you know, people are already living in fear um, with like inequality. People don't have, you know, job security like we just talked about. So this breeds the perfect environment for like exploitation for Mm -hmm. someone like Trump with his very like divisive, discriminatory rhetoric. And he channels this fear into hate and anger. Mm -hmm. And if you believe what Freud said about it, that depression is anger toward turned inwards, Mm -hmm. this could also explain why people are so depressed. Like Freud said that anger and the anger and resentment we feel towards others manifests itself internally as this sort of like self hatred. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I thought that made perfect sense. Yeah. And fear does not inspire innovation or creativity, but conformity. Mm-hmm. And so if you totally. look at the pro- you know, products coming out, like they're just like mimicking things that are already successful. Like it's just, it's a horrible, like it's just a horrible way to live. Totally. Yeah, no, fear does inspire conformity. I actually just watched someone share this on Facebook. It was a little video that I guess like Bernie Sanders had shared, but it was about how it was looking at different people's brains and like whether they, where they fall on the political spectrum. And they found that people who were more fearful or who had, yeah, like were kind of wired for fearful thoughts would lean more conservative. And then people Mm -hmm. who were less fearful would obviously lean more, they said liberal, but whatever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But like that obviously made a lot of sense, you know? And I I think that people kind of know that too. Like Michael Moore used to talk about this a long time ago in his documentaries about like this culture of fear. And I feel like people like understood that but it just didn't really sink in because like the culture of fear has just ramped up excessively since that time and like it's just kind of at this all-time high now where it's like everyone's fearful yes yes (sighs) but i mean and people are fearful in different ways like obviously like conservatives or whatever are fearful of immigrants and muslims and whatever and that's what they're afraid of um you know, people like me are afraid of being just sucked into the system and spit out and not not going to be able to make it 
like not gonna be able to make a living gonna have to like harm myself to do that you know what i mean like everyone is scared even if you are like more of a leftist minded person like you're probably still scared of climate change and like the future and where things are going you know what i mean so honestly the more i read about what's going on in the world the more scared i get and the more i'm like what is going on oh my god what are we doing and the more the more that i like it's hard to imagine the future and that's why i think that capitalist realism and emergent strategy are really important because it's like yeah we have to start imagining like we like we can't just live in this place of fear like knowing that it's this political economy that is creating so much of our distress and our fear and our unhappiness like we can't just like sit here dwelling in fear and just like watch this all happen. Like it can't be this paralyzing fear. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Um, But often it is, you know, but I think, I mean, I think even just talking about that is a good thing, like, and making like meaningful connections with people that you can talk to about your existential fear is important. You know what I mean? Other than like, because otherwise you're just sitting there alone reading the news being like, fuck. (laughs) Like I have people who message me and they're just like, what do you think the people message me all the time since I talk about climate change? And they're just like, what do you think the chances are that we won't like burn up by 2100 or something? Oh my God. And and, like people, yeah, people honestly ask me that. They're like, do you think it's too late already? Um, And they're like, I'm asking because I'm trying to calculate my future. I'm trying to calculate whether I should have a child. I'm trying to calculate, you know what I mean? Like people are thinking about this stuff so much. Right. And I'm like, I mean, of course we have to think about this because uh, yeah, like good question. Um, and I can give you a number of answers or like a number of like different possible, um, you know, future scenarios or whatever, but, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's just disparaging to live in this kind of world and then to see so many people, just not paying attention or like not giving a shit, you know what I mean? Like, or to see our entire society behaving as if it doesn't realize that these are threats or doesn't, doesn't realize that people like more than half of the people in the U S are living in poverty now, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's like uh, what you were talking about with uh, someone asking you, um, you know, they're debating on whether to have kids. And that's something I think about every day. I have two kids and I just think like what kind of world is going to be left for them and then their kids or, you know, my grandkids, mm-hmm. what, what's, what's this earth going to be like in 50 years? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, yeah. being, being a parent is so hard, especially, you know, you have to deal with all the everyday things like heartbreak and, you know, yeah. skinned knees and, you know, making sure that they grow up to be like, hopefully, you know, healthy minded people. And now we have to worry about <laughs> whether mm-hmm. the world's going to burn up. Yeah. God. No, I know. I know that's why Naomi Klein, like she's kind of credits having children as why she's like pushing so much harder now for like climate action and stuff. And I mean, people yeah. can criticize her cause she's, you know, she's not calling, I don't think she's calling for like revolution, but like the leap manifesto in Canada is like quite positive and progressive. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's a definite move in the right direction, but yeah. But yeah, I think Mark Fisher even talks about how capitalist, this capitalist political economy also ruins families and like ruins our relationships because we don't have time for one another and we're all under so much stress yeah that's he actually he has a a really good quote in here i'll just read it quick 
The situation of the family in post-Fordist capitalism is contradictory in precisely the way that traditional Marxism expected. Capitalism requires the family as an essential means of reproducing and caring for labor power, as a salve for the psychic wounds inflicted by anarchic social economic conditions, even as it undermines it, denying parents time with children, putting intolerable stress on couples as they become the exclusive source of effective consolation for each other. Mm-hmm. And that's such a good point. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of what, so um, I'm a stay at home mom and uh, my partner and the father of my kids is um, runs a small business and I kind of help him with that, but he works seven days a week. He's constantly struggling to, you know, keep things afloat and, it's mm-hmm. kind of ironic because um, I sometimes feel like uh, guilty because, you know, it's, you know, it's, and it's like you, you do what you have to do to survive. It's like mm-hmm. you have to do what you can. So, yeah, it's really hard because he's constantly away, but, you know, he has to put food on the table. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we have to survive. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to, like, have a date night or to, like, keep close bonds between us mm-hmm. in the relationship and then also parenting and just, it's tough all around, you know? Yeah, definitely. I feel like yeah. um, John Bellamy Foster also wrote a great article about like the changing role of the family under capitalism. So I think I'll link that in a timeline because I don't really remember it now, but but definitely. And then in terms of like getting out of that or the solutions to that, there aren't really many good ones, you know what I mean? Or it's yeah. just like, okay, get a counselor, you know, like the solutions to this are all individualized like hire a life coach or like (laughs) do some yoga or like start a meditation practice which i'm like these are all great things like i love meditation like i'm a buddhist like everyone yeah meditate do that yoga like if you have access to therapy like oh my god i can't say enough good things about my therapist she's the fucking best i (laughs) love her yeah all of this stuff is important but it all just kind of brings it back to the self and the kind of like well if you really want to fix things for yourself then you need to be trying harder yes and yeah i just i just feel like that's so obviously capitalist and so damaging and like we've talked before in a podcast about this idea of like positivity culture and how it kind of like plays itself off as this kind of like spiritual buddhist thing but that it can be also damaging as well because for people like for people actively start like if people are homeless or whatever it's like you cannot just think really positive thoughts and then not remember that you're starving or you know what I mean or like even someone like me when I was going through chronic pain and insomnia like I can't just like think really great thoughts And then that'll make me forget that like I'm in fucking chronic pain and, and I'm like really sad about that. (laughs) Like I'm like, I can't deal with it emotionally, you know? Yeah. I think there's something to be said too, um, for positive positivity culture, making it seem like any emotion except for positive ones are 
bad, like uh, Mm -hmm. making them seem like you shouldn't have them at all. So Mm -hmm. it's unhealthy to be angry or, uh, or depressed and that these should be seen as bad emotions. And so you need to think yourself out of, you think your way out of it into good emotions. But really Mm -hmm. uh, I think the opposite is true and that it's normal and in fact, healthy to be feeling anger when something happens, you know, you lose your job Mm -hmm. or that's, you know, these things are these feelings, all our whole range of emotions, Mm -hmm. totally normal. And so to make it seem like we should only be having positive emotions. And if we're not, there's something wrong with us is Mm -hmm. incredibly destructive. Mm -hmm. And it causes a lot of shame and guilt because Mm -hmm. I think it's like, then you beat yourself up for not being able to think positive. So you already have Mm -hmm. these negative emotions about whatever but you know, situation you're suffering from, but then you have the added shame and guilt because you can't think positively. And it's exactly, like, you know, yeah. like, it's- and then it becomes a personal failure that right. you're not feeling better or thinking better and all of that yes. stuff. And it's yes. like, I mean, I really understand, like, I believe in the power of thought. I really do. And I believe yeah. in a lot of like the Buddhist teachings and everything. But when we just like have this blanket idea that that applies in every single situation, like it doesn't, it's, it's yeah. context specific. You know what I mean? In a yeah. lot of cases, yeah, you do need to like step back and like channel love and you really reflect on what's causing you to think and feel and behave in certain ways. But if you have a chemical imbalance, like if you're suffering from like postpartum depression or or if you're just a poor black kid who's being harassed by the police and jailed for absolutely no reason, like, of course, you're going to feel fucking angry and sad yes. and scared and whatever. You know what I mean? It's just like, you can't just like think your way out of abuse or right. oppression. You know what I mean? And I don't know. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who advocate like, well, like there is a way to kind of find your own kind of space of freedom, like in your mind. Yeah. And I, and I understand that and I agree, but at the same time, it's like, we can't just individualize the solution so much that we're forgetting about the systemic causes and thinking like that this is a personal failure and not something that we need to just like radically politicize and attack on a like a very political level. Yeah, I that's actually a really good point and something that really I've been thinking a lot about is this idea of personal responsibility and how it's really used kind of like you said. I when I was in my 12 step program and really, you know, that was so beneficial to me. It was super beneficial for me to take personal responsibility of my of my life to uh look at my life and realize how I had hurt the people in my life through my actions. It was mm-hmm. really important for me to make amends to the people that I had, had caused harm to. It was really important for me to do some self-work and realized uh, where all of my hatred and uh, resentment and anger was coming from and mm-hmm. to take personal responsibility in that way. So I think it can be very valuable. But on the other hand, I think it often gets used in this way where it's like, People just say, well, you got to take personal responsibility and that's it. And we shouldn't, shouldn't then look at anything that has to do with the system. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can do both. You can take personal, you can take some personal responsibility in in certain aspects of your life. You know, you can do what you can. Mm -hmm. And, but there's also so much to be said for thinking your way out of poverty. That's just stupid. Like, you know, we have to look big picture here and, Yeah. I mean, like personal responsibility is classist also because 
like if you don't have the means to pay for a life coach or yeah. to pay for yoga or like meditation groups or like if you're working so many jobs you don't have time to like sit down and meditate for like a fucking yeah. hour every day or like you know or, yeah. you, or you, you can't afford a therapist or anything so this is just another way that it's like of course the most vulnerable the people who need it the most aren't going to be able to get it and i just think we need to like totally we obviously need to just recreate our entire society on one that's like has purpose and value and like is about connection and relationship and whatever, not just production and consumption because production and consumption are empty and they always will be. And it's yeah. like, you can, you can do what you can on the side to like find joy with like friends. And like, I, I do, I do that all the time. Like I, you know, I definitely go out and like find joy with friends and like, I love for me, this is like kind of kitschy, but like, I love, going camping and like just being out in nature. Cause I feel like a real sense of connection when I'm just like in nature, like alone in nature, you know? And I just, I feel like this has so much more meaning to me than anything in like our capitalist bullshit city life of yeah. like pointlessness. So I don't know. I mean like, yeah, definitely there's a lot of ways to like find joy and everything. But I think obviously until we like fundamentally reorganize our society, mental illness will continue to be a serious problem and we'll still just be working on Band-Aid solutions, basically. Exactly. And even, you know, you were talking about uh, postpartum depression before and <laughs> there was just no way that that was one of the worst depressions I'd been in after I had uh, my son. Uh, mm. I just, I was crying nonstop. And when you go through something like really as physically taxing as that, and your hormones are literally all over the place and mm -hmm. there's just, there's just no thinking your way out of that. So like you said, I just think everything is very context specific. We need to be, it's just, I think there's not enough nuance. We just paint these things with broad strokes and just think that like certain things should apply to everybody. And it's mm -hmm. just, we need to just... <laughs> We just need to not do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. But also no one talks about it. Like for postpartum depression, it's like, like everyone is was probably just like, oh, like what a magical thing. Like, yeah. oh, aren't you just living in a bubble of love? Like how amazing. And then you're just like, no, I'm fucking so depressed. Yes. But like, but you can't say that as a mother. Like <laughs> Right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Or the parents that really, um, this didn't happen to me, but the moms that, um, after they have their baby, they have thoughts of like harming their child. And yeah. that's something, you know, that's something seriously psychologically and uh, whatever going mm -hmm. wrong, but you can't, you cannot talk about that. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can't say that. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously if you're wanting to harm your child, you need to like definitely get help. Need, yeah. You need to get help obviously. But I'm saying like, these are things that should be talked about more. And these are things that happen as a result of, you know, having a baby and, you know, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that's just like not talked about or whatever. And I think that's also just like our social media culture of just like, here's like, you know, no one's going to post Ugh. a picture of themselves being like, oh, I'm like, <laughs> I haven't yes. slept in days. Like, I'm so <laughs> depressed, like feeling, you know, like no one's posting that. They're just like, here's me or like, here's my yes. lovely family and like my lovely baby and like everything is a bubble <laughs> of love and like, 
you know, even me, I'm not posting shit of me being like, oh, I feel, look and feel like shit. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, like people just aren't doing that. I was just going to say, if you judged me by my Facebook page, you would think that I had the perfect life. And I think that's the case <clears throat> yeah. of anything. And I think that's why it's so depressing to mm-hmm. go through, especially Facebook. Like Twitter is a little bit different, but like Facebook yeah. is like everyone is posting as if their life is fabulous and it's just not, you know, so it's quite depressing sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And also like, because we're so alienated under capitalism, like we're taught, like we crave recognition and validation from these people who like in any other time, we wouldn't even know who they were. Yes. Like before, because I remember a time before smartphones and stuff and you just had (laughs) your phone and you would just text or call the people that you actually know, like the people in your life were the people that you saw you know what I mean and now it's like the people in my life is like everyone I've ever met (laughs) ever like someone I met at like a frat party in like 2008 like that I've never spoken to I spoke to one time like they are my person on like I I can see everything about their life like they can see everything (laughs) about my life it's like all these fucking ghosts but like because we're so fucking starved for like real connection or like a real sense of purpose in life it's like we just crave recognition and validation from all these people where it's like like what do I care if what they think like in any other world we wouldn't we wouldn't be seeing each other's lives you know what I mean yeah but I feel like we all kind of like self-censor and stuff like that and just like the form over the substance like more like so much more work goes into the PR than the actual substance and that's true of everything in capitalism like mark mark fisher goes over this a lot in his book that just like so much more goes into the pr than any actual substance yes and this just leaves us with that empty feeling that we try to fill with like anything (laughs) like you know and like sometimes that anything is just like posting something online to get a bunch of likes from people that you don't know anymore you know that you like that you probably have nothing in common with anymore but these are your friends yeah and you become um addicted to the likes too it's like oh how many Uh likes did i get it's it's like uh part of neoliberalism too is just like commodifying or not what's the word like um just like everything's broken down into like, yeah, like quantified. Uh, quantified, yes. That's the word I was looking for. Just into, you know, how many likes can I get? How many views can I get? And then it's this very up and down, like, oh, this picture didn't get as many likes. Like, why not? Yeah. It's like, like you know what I mean? This very roller coaster of superficial emotions based on, mm-hmm. you know, whether someone liked a picture. It just, mm-hmm. and it, it, when you really break it down and think about it, it's just, it's very bizarre. And honestly, if I talk about this all the time, like, I get so excited when I leave my phone somewhere or, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I've had it, you know, break a couple times and it's like those <laughs> a couple days before I get a new phone yeah, or just like taking a break from social media or whatever. It's you really uh, kind of see what truly matters. And when you're living mm-hmm. in this, in this weird internet world, it's just, mm-hmm. it's this you're just in a bizarre. box. Yeah. A bubble. You're, d- a you're, just, yeah. you're constantly in this like box. And I feel like, Without that, like your world just shrinks. Suddenly everything is like simpler. Suddenly it's like, okay, what am I doing here and now? Who am I connecting with here and now yes. in real life? Yeah, I just, I just feel so much better when my world is like smaller like that. You know what I mean? Yes. And yet I can, ne- I never really go on any social media cleanses because I'm like, this is such a politically fraught moment in time that I feel like I'm like, no, I need to be out there. I need to be educating people and whatever. Anyway, I feel like we're kind of getting off topic. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is all just to say that like the society we've built is not conducive to positive mental health. Yes. And the solutions that we're proposing we're proposing are good for like people they're necessary for people, but we really need to like repoliticize this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And um something I've been thinking about too is like this sort of contradiction of trying to be anti-capitalist in a capitalist world, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of that there's this existential angst of everything, every protest, every uh, movement somehow finds its way being incorporated into capitalism. And Mm -hmm. Mark Fisher talked about it in his book too. So I think it was Adorno that said that, you know, capitalism, capitalism is able to turn every protest against itself into a profit. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and you see these like countless, you know, revolutionaries, uh, sporting like mass made Che Guevara t-shirts and, you know, that ridiculous Pepsi commercial last year, like with, you know, Kendall Jenner, like completely co-opting the Black Lives Matter movement, handing a cop a Coke, you know. And I just, I liked how we talked about Kurt Cobain, who suffered really immensely because of this contradiction. Like, he was really a tortured, depressive drug addict and a brilliant artist and musician that truly believed in, like, anti-capitalist sentiment. And he just could not reconcile his hate for the system with the fact that he had to participate in it. Mm-hmm. And and if, and if you think about it, if he hadn't have sold out to MTV and to his record company or whatever, his message never would have reached the audience. It did. And so mm-hmm. it, it's really is just it's very depressing to mm-hmm. try to, for like, think about forming an alternate society or to fight against capitalism there's sort of a sort of feeling like yeah like everything i do just gets incorporated into this model and um Mm. something i really liked that he talked that fisher talked about is he thought that instead we should show the ways in which capitalism is inconsistent contradictory and unsustainable and he was talking about that being more effective approach and it's uh thought that it was important to show that capitalism is not natural it's not reflective of human nature as people like to say it is and in Mm -hmm. fact it goes against all of our natural instincts and so sometimes you know sometimes it feels like just like this is the only way and competition is is the way and this is the only way i'm going to get ahead in the world and I myself like have thought of, you know, just like dealt with that contradiction. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, it definitely is depressing. I mean, yeah, I get a lot of messages of people <laughs> dealing with that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think to that point of like, you know, what, what do we do? I think there is a lot of value in critique. And I know a lot of people say, you know, well, critique without a immediate plan is meaningless. And I disagree. I mean, I think there is a lot of value in breaking this stuff down, understanding the root causes of all of our afflictions, and then bringing that to light and making that clear to other people who can then become our allies in the struggle because we all have a stake in this. Like we all have a stake in creating a new system. And I think, you know, our creativity and everything will spring out of that deep place of understanding. So I think there is value in critique and in really looking at this like Mark Fisher has done. But I also really like at the end of this book and like emergent strategy, like I said, in terms of also working on our creativity, like trying to, you know, do things that bring us joy, like do things that, yeah, we just really enjoy doing, like, I don't know, take some guitar lessons or something or like go, you know what I mean? Like do things that will feed your soul and make you feel kind of 
in this more creative place because we need creativity more than anything, you know, and like creativity has been co-opted a lot of times in the service of like capital or innovation or like synergy or whatever kind of bullshit. But like, we really do need to make connections with each other, like in real life connections with each other, um, if possible. And also like really get creative. Yeah, I think there's a lot of lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, totally. And, you know. And I think that's like, uh, you know, also a symptom of like, yeah, we're all stressed. We're all depressed. We're all dealing with this contradiction. Um, it's like it weighs you down. And then that's not a place where you really want to feel like creative because you're just like, oh, I give up. You know what I mean? I just think that capitalism is a system based on obviously greed and individualism And this, as we have demonstrated, is clearly toxic to human existence and positive, you know, good mental health and connection, et cetera. But there are so many other ways to live and so many other ways to connect with one another and to understand our relationship with other species. There are so many ways to value yourself and one another that have nothing to do with the capitalist job market Mm -hmm. or how much money you bring in. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this in the form over substance, just really, you know, in your relationships, trying to be as present and as vulnerable and as real as you possibly can, because like these people, you know, like you really want to cultivate relationships with yourself and with others that really do not put any worth on how much money that anybody makes or like what job anybody has, you know, things that are really valuable outside of these commodity networks. And I think that also seeing all of this for what it is, like seeing the system for what it is, seeing the way that it impacts our mental health for what that is, I think that, you know, critique and really seeing this is the first step to being able to kind of rise above it in a way or float above it, like to be able to look at it from a place of a bit of distance and say, you know, uh, okay, I see that this is the reality presented to me, but this is not the real of existence. And then if I'm in this headspace of understanding and of, you know, reevaluating my relationships and my being, then I can start to construct a new real. And what she talks about, um, the author of emergent strategies that we also have to make this joyful. Like we have to make the alternative joyful so that the alternative is just so irresistible that others can't not join us. And so like there's joy in creativity and there's joy in being awake to this stuff, I think. Um, Definitely. And so, yeah, I guess if anybody takes something from this podcast, I hope that it is that and that we can, you know, channel our creativity um, to more kind of joyful places instead of, you know, paralyzing fear. Yes. Well, yeah. Self-care, I think, is really important and it's really not stressed enough um, because especially if you're trying to do you know, all these, if you're doing protests and all these different things, like you really need to also have some other outlet. And, um, like I used to draw, I used to paint both of my, my, my mom and my grandparents were artists and, um, Mm -hmm. it's like therapeutic, I think to, Mm -hmm. you know, have some other outlet. And I also, um, I like the idea of 
prefigurative politics. I think mm-hmm. is, the anarchists talk about that. Um, just yeah. like kind of living the way you want to see the world. That is obviously political. Um, but that's just something else I really like that, you know, mm-hmm. capitalism isn't ending today. So why not, you know, prefigure the way we want to see the world, you know? Yeah. Like try to carve out spaces that are decommodified, yeah. kind of like food, yeah. not bombs ish stuff. Yeah, exactly. But in terms of like mental health and repoliticizing that, I feel like, um, I mean, I feel like a lot of good work is being done to like end the stigma of mental health and addiction and things like that. But I think that we don't like, I think activists don't do enough to bring in the social determinants of health and like the political economy of mental illness into the discussion. And I think that's something that we need to be pushing front and center in the discussion is like, it's tragic, you know, seeing all these celebrities that we look up to taking their own lives. And, you know, we talk a lot about the stigma and how people are suffering in silence and how wrong that is. And so, yes, we want that to be out in the open. Yes, we want people to be able to talk and have access to therapy and have access to pills and there not be a stigma. Yes, yes, yes to all of that. But we also want systemic change. We also want to talk about the structures that are causing this and the many situations that people just can't, like there's no amount of therapy or pills or anything that's going to get you out of that oppressive situation. So we want to bring political economy back into the discussion in the mainstream. Like when we're seeing all these movements to end stigma, like we should also be talking about these structures that are making this happen and really repoliticizing this in a way that makes the average person understand that if we want to get serious about solving mental health, we have to get serious about, you know, fixing our society. Yeah, definitely. Totally agree. Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Repoliticization is the key, I think. Yeah. I don't think I even just pronounced that right. <laughs> Repoliticization. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even, whatever. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I just wanted to shout out the Vegan Warrior Princesses. Fuck, I can't say that. <laughs> Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack podcast. They had Stephen Dawson on. Um, really? For like a two-part series talking about – they were talking about, I think, bipolar disorder. I can't remember the exact disorder they were talking about. But they it wasn't just about that. It was really about the political economy of mental illness and about how, yeah, like we malign people for – you know, not being able to make it in this system that actively tries to destroy you. And then we malign them for like feeling bad about that, you know? Um, And so anyway, I just wanted to shout that out. I'll put it in the show notes. And we also have some Patreon pledges to shout out. Ooh, yay. (laughs) So super special thanks to Aike. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that. Um, A-I-K-E. And Carissa. So yeah, thank you so much for your pledges. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a monthly patron donor uh, at veganvanguardpodcast.com on our website. Or you could throw us a one-time donation via PayPal 
or you can rate and review us on iTunes or whatever you listen to us on. Um, we have a lot of great reviews on the American iTunes, but yeah, if you're Canadian, throw us a review because <laughs> that's the one that I see and I'm like, oh, I want more reviews here. <laughs> oh, is that why you couldn't see them for a while? Yeah. Remember? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't um, even know they were two different things. Okay. You only see the reviews for whatever country you're in. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, it's a bad system. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much to Leslie for joining me on this episode. I loved this conversation and I think it's so important and I hope it's helpful for people or like relatable. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I got a lot out of this and yeah, I thought it was a really great conversation too. Yeah. So I will link Leslie's channel in the description. So check her out and I guess that's all. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.